Well, I uh, I went to get a haircut today, which I, I'll ha- I'm happy to talk about uh, in the recommendation section. And uh, I was I was down there, you know, where where all the happening stuff is. At least at least for the people over thirty, the kind of uh, let's call it the I went to the triangle. You know, you got that area just north of campus and south of like 183, and I feel like that's where the uh, where the the people slightly younger than me, the millennials. That's the millennial zone, I think. Maybe, do you think you think that's true? Mm, I think it's yeah, it's uh, early graduate millennial mm. area, like kind of like twenty five to thirty, I'd say. Because I feel like the millenniums now are like in their thirties, right? Which is still how I mentally think of myself that that I'm in my thirties. So I feel I don't like, know. I read I feel like they're adulting. Like, but some uh, I don't, one various uh, author, you know, journalist was just like ripping to shreds this idea of generations. Mm. And it doesn't make any sense, and we need to stop using these words. And and to be fair, I actually don't ever understand like where one generation starts and another ends. I just know I'm Gen yeah. X. Yeah. Ooh, so Gen I don't X. really care. I don't really care about it. And therefore, because I'm Gen X, I don't really care about any other generations. <laughs> See, so exactly, exactly. You got that Gen X attitude, which is which is <laughs> like I cannot even muster up. The the passion to use the phrase fuck it that's yes, how little exactly. i care <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, anyways so i was down there and uh, i went by uh, i went by style switch you know um there used to be a time when you would say that's next to the yellow rose but uh thankfully no one i talked to really knows that reference anymore uh anyhow uh and you know it's good barbecue and it occurred to me as I was driving around that I should I should go over you know my evolving rules of of how to eat barbecue cuz cuz I haven't I haven't referenced this in a while I used to incessantly talk about this but one of my projects for my uh I don't know septuagenarian uh era is I want to write like a a series of things or videos if those still exist then about how to eat things which I won't go into now but I've put a lot of thought into how to eat barbecue, and I thought I would uh, that I would grace everyone with that, and and you know you know how to eat barbecue, so you can you can weigh in, you can validate or invalidate uh, <laughs> my 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 things here. All right, all right. So now I got I came up with I used bullet list, so I had to count. I have I have five rules so far, which I feel like is too too many, but that's okay. <laughs> yes. So, so the first one. So you're gonna go, and and this this occurred to me. Because I went in there, and Styles and Switch, they have a walk-up-to-the-counter deal where you go through their style, and most barbecue places are like this. You go in, and they have the, uh, they've got, like, the, uh, the manufacturing line where they got the, they might call it a cutter or the beef guy or person. Yeah. It's like it's a all, butcher kind of feel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. About, yeah. yeah. So you always got the beef person. Then you got right. the sides person. And occasionally, like, if you go to Cooper's, there's the, there's the beef cutter. They have someone who, at Cooper's, they've got this, this third person who gives you the meat and puts it in the trash can of sauce. And then there's the person who cuts your meat up. And then there's the sides person. But usually you just got the beef person and then the sides person. And then you check out. Anyhow, so they got that. And I walked up there and there was this cluster of people and, uh, they, they were talking amongst themselves. And I realized that they were trying to figure out what to do. Like they had never like been to a barbecue place. And both, several of them very graciously were like, Oh, you can go ahead. And so I went ahead of them and I heard them discussing like chicken and things like that. I don't know. So I thought that's why I was thinking this. So first of all, here's, here's, here's what I'm going to say. Like you go in there, what you want to do, you're going to order a two meat plate. I feel like, I feel like that's just, that's the basics, right? Now, 
Now, what with a two meat plate, if you don't know, you get two meats, and usually you get two sides, unless unless <laughs> <laughs> unless you go to one of those places, uh, you go to the Salt Lick, and you don't get to choose your sides. They give you like the uh, the the weird potato salad, coleslaw, and beans. They don't even ask, but that's fine. And usually you got a whole, especially go to a fancy Austin place. They got a whole selection of things, and the sides you want to get. I mean, unless you know what you're doing, you get yourself beans and coleslaw. Now, you might have some uh, some question about do you want the vinegar coleslaw or the mayonnaise coleslaw? I don't know. You should get the mayonnaise coleslaw, in my opinion, but I have no strong opinions there. But get the beans and the coleslaw and the two meat plate. And if you've never been to this barbecue restaurant, one of your sides should be brisket. You always want to try out the brisket. That's sort of like the uh, the dipstick, how you rate a barbecue place. And unless you're grossed out by, like, uh, grease, you always get as much fat in the brisket as possible, just at least for the first go, because that's going to be, like, that's going to be, like, the premium thing they spend all their time right. paying attention to. That's, like, to. the baseline. That's, yeah. That's the yeah. thing that, yeah, got it. So, so, so you can compare, uh-huh. you can compare, the brisket is the one thing you can use to benchmark the maturity uh, graph or whatever of all, all of all places. That's all you need to really have to compare them. Now, for your second side, it doesn't matter. Get whatever you want. Like I would recommend against turkey because it's always shitty, right? I have never eaten good. I've never had good turkey anywhere at a barbecue place. It's always like dry and crumbly. Maybe not crumbly, but it's just not good. Like I, I like I like a chicken, or if they have. Um, they have some pork ribs. I'm a little dodgy on these St. Louis ribs, but ribs are a good choice. But, uh, you know, get whatever you mm-hmm. want for the second side. So that's the first thing. Get a two-meat plate. Now, there are some exceptions. Like today, I had a beef rib. Beef rib's a whole other thing. That's that's a whole subsection here. But usually you get the two-meat plate. Now, my second, my second how-to-eat-barbecue, I hesitate to call them rules because of the last rule, is you should eat all the barbecue. There's no – you just <laughs> – just eat it all, right? You might feel sick. You might need a nap, but you eat all the barbecue. There's no no taking home barbecue, so you got to do that. That's like the experience. Okay, and like it. Yeah. And then my third rule, and this is only a recent innovation that I've realized, is that you need to eat the barbecue with your fingers. You don't like cut it up with a knife and a fork and uh, do that. I forget if it's like Smitty's or Blacks or somewhere, but there's one of these places that only gives you a knife. And uh, I realized recently that it's like the uh, the visceral experience of eating with your fingers and feeling the meat and ripping it up and sticking the, your fingers in your mouth. Like this is part of the whole thing of of the barbecue. And so you know you gotta you gotta eat with your fingers. You can eat the sides, notably the beans and the coleslaw. You can use like I use a spoon for that. You can eat you can use silverware for the sides, but everything else you can get get fingers with. Now. The other th- speaking of, uh, I, f- I skipped this part because I wasn't looking at my note. The other thing they're going to do is they're going to ask you if you want bread, onions, and pickles, or they're going to have it for you to get. Now, my opinion is you don't want to get the bread. The bread's just like filler. I used to eat the bread a lot when I could eat a lot, but you know, usually it's just like you know white bread, and it's delicious. But like you should just skip the bread. That's my recommendation. Some places like you go to uh, you go to Rudy's. And they're just they're just ready to give you a fucking loaf of bread, like, and I don't know what their deal is, but they're like giving away bread like it's plutonium or something. So you know, I would recommend skipping the bread. Now, 
I like to load up on onions. I really like the... I don't know what it is they do at barbecue places. I think what they do is slice them. But I feel like the sliced onions that they have at barbecue places, like I could never replicate them at home. I don't know why that is or whatever, but it's a whole different type of onion. Like I was at Style Switch today and uh, they asked me, they asked the uh, bread, onions, pickles, and I said, only onions. And then, and then I saw the guy grab a big, like, handful of onions, and he separated them all. And he was like, I know you like a lot of onions. And, and I was <laughs> like, man, that guy has me pegged. He, he knows it. So, and then the pickles, like, I could take or leave the pickles. I don't, usually the pickles they give you at the barbecue place are just, like, those neon green waffle cut pickles. And sometimes, you know, I forget where. Well, uh, I think at, uh, at, uh, the Salt Lake, actually, they excel at pickles. They give you like really good dill pickles there. So I'll order extra of those. And then, and then a pro tip there, uh, especially at the Salt Lake is you can take your barbecue home. So right before you go home, you should ask for extra pickles and then you'll get some delicious pickles to take and just, just stick that in your, your pocket. So that, that, so we got that. Now the next one, uh, Suggestion number four is, I've summarized this in a snarky way, is you don't want to put sugar on your meat. And what do I mean by that? Now, a lot of barbecue sauce has, not a lot, but some barbecue sauce you'll get will have a lot of sugar in it. Like you go, you go to the grocery store, you look at those, uh, those bottles of, of, uh, I don't know, consumer grade barbecue sauce you get. It's basically like red corn syrup if you look at it. So, if you're at some barbecue place and you look at their sauce and it looks like it's all sugary and sweet, you should skip that because it's just like the sugar, there's nothing wrong. Well, there are things wrong with sugar. Sugar tastes great, but it's just like not correct to mix that in. Now, you go to some places and they'll have like a mustard sauce or a vinegar sauce and that's that's fine. I got nothing against that. But just don't – you don't want to ruin your uh, – it's like putting A1 on a nice steak. Just don't put sugar on your meat. That's that's no good. Maybe if you mistakenly order the uh, the turkey and you're like, oh, I can't tell if I'm eating my plate or if I'm eating this turkey <laughs> slice. Maybe you put your sugar on that. And then finally, in a true Orwellian sense, I think I think the other the other how to eat barbecue is don't tell people how to eat our barbecue. Like you don't want to argue about like if you got dry rub or sauce and like like all this stuff. Like barbecue, I think is a very like. Uh, it's not that it's an individual experience, but it's like a broad experience that you can, you can, people can delight in it however they want. There's no, there's no, like, you don't need to berate them about like you're, you're doing it wrong. Like, like, uh, you know, people have hot dog fights and, and fights about what you can put ketchup and mustard on, which are delightful. But with barbecue, you know, just, you just have a good time. So that, that right there, that's my suggestion, my starter course on, uh, on, on eating barbecue. All right. Well, I think that is very thorough and expansive as, uh, as expected. I think the only thing I would offer up is maybe say that this is a really a primer on how to eat barbecue in Texas. Cause I oh. would say, now, wait, is uh, there, being, is there other barbecue? Being, I've, yeah, I mean, so, I've eaten uh, stuff called barbecue outside of Texas. I was going to say, uh, spending, uh, uh, growing up in the mid Atlantic, you know, mm. uh, area, especially spending uh, quite a bit of time in, uh, North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina. There, the rules are completely different, right? Because it's about pork. So there we would oh, yes. switch it up and we'd say the, the, area or the the meats are known for there are really all centered around pork so you would not order the brisket in north carolina you would order a variation of the pork and to really go the other way is to get the true experience you would violate a lot of these rules because you get the pork sandwich 
on the white bread, you would take the coleslaw and you would put that on the sandwich mm. and then you would put a little bit of barbecue sauce on it, which being kind of the sugary kind. Uh, and then you would eat that thing and you'd be like, wow, this is really good. That's this true. is almost That's like true. a dessert. So you got to like you do need to adjust for region a little bit. But, I, you know, again, this can't go wrong with these things, certainly here in Austin. Are really in the central uh, Texas barbecue places. They, this would be a good way to go. You know, I think you're right. I'm going to modify my list to how to eat, and then in parentheses, hill country barbecue. I think I think that's uh, that's how you do it. And I know it's not only hill country, but that sounds cool. So you know, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> the uh, you know the barbecue we have here is a lot different than the uh, what they have out east there. And yes, a uh, if if I were one who eats ate sandwiches a whole lot, uh, those those pork sandwiches are delicious. They're they're very good. Obviously, your dog, big fan of Texas barbecue. Very, 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 very happy about the barbecue topic this week. That's right. You know, I feel like we should go on and, and have a whole segment about dogs sometimes. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah. You know, it took me about a year to, to not hate my dog. Because, like, you know, I'm like, I'm like typical, typical, like, uh, I don't know stereotypical dad where it's like you know what a dog is a dog is in three months me taking care of the dog all the fucking time so you know great which which again is very very cynical and everything but so you know i thought the dog was very annoying but then i realized that like the dog is basically just like in love with everyone and like that's kind of endearing so you know. oh man i wish i could get there that's another <laughs> podcast i need to work on that I'm not I'm not quite there yet yeah. I, I'm really not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the dog's kind of goofy, but whatever, it's it's fine. So, uh, so also, you know, I I got uh, I got this is this is just like the wonder comment this week. Very light on tech news, so just just filling time here. But uh, I got I got a, one of these new. I've been at Pivotal for three years, so I got a MacBook Pro as my my refresher, and uh, I I'll put the specs in the show notes because I don't really know. It says MacBook Pro 15-inch 2017, which, you know, that's not the way they used to classify computers in my day. I don't know what, what that means. <laughs> I, we used to be, you know, 46DX quad-core, you know, super nuclear thermal thing or something. But uh, that's fine. I guess maybe I shouldn't have the serial number in there. Is that is that dangerous? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not uh, good to give it to everyone. Hmm. Although hmm. I don't know of any – I don't know – I don't know. Someone would do something bad with it. I don't know what. Mm. But yeah, I think I think you know. There's two main things you would be upset about with this machine. Well, I think there's three. I hear people complaining about the keyboard, which um, I don't know. Whatever the up and down arrow, kind of weird. And then and then and then related, you got a touch bar, and the escape key is on the touch bar, which is taking some getting used to. And I think the, I think the touch bar is fun. Like like right now, if I go over to Skype. It changes these buttons like I could just tap something to hang up on you or mute myself. <laughs> and like it, when you're in PowerPoint, you know, when you're in presenter mode, it'll show you like at the bottom, like this strip yep. of your slides. So when you're in presenter mode, it puts that strip of slides on the touch bar and you can kind of swipe through it, which is which is kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, the touch bar is a little weird because like I'm always I, I guess I rest my fingers up there a lot. So I'm always doing things like going back in the web browser and, you know. Uh, I haven't destructively deleted anything, but I had to teach myself how to do that. And then, of course, you've got the uh, you've got the Apple uh, Cord optimization experience, 
Uh, <laughs> Adapter bill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's got what they call the USB-C, which I guess means you can do video power and, you know, your, uh, I don't know, PCI bus or whatever it is through it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I guess if I wasn't expensing all of this to Pivotal, because, you know, I, I need this for my work. Uh, I would be annoyed that I had to buy all this new stuff, but you know, whatever. That's just the way it is. It's no big deal. And uh, well, I think the biggest thing nice I've machine. heard, you know, is and we'll have to see use you as a uh, another test. It's just that not the fact that the keyboard, you know, it has like I guess um, the keys aren't quite as what does it call it like not flow uh, mm. travel. They have a little less travel, which some t- I think touch typists don't like. But just like I do know this because I've seen this at work and stuff. If you get a key go bad and there, and it does seem to be true that the keys are more likely to, to go bad because they just simply have the contact is much smaller. Mm. They have to replace the entire like board, you know? Uh. And, and that is what people, that's what makes people very, very angry. It's an expensive repair. And of course it has to like, it takes a while. Ugh. So yeah. that is the thing you have to watch out for. That's true. Well, you know, when I, when I got this shipped, from uh, from my company, the the monitor didn't turn on or a screen or whatever, and like it would boot up and you would hear things. And I actually like sort of accidentally used Voiceover, you know, where it tells you everything. And I could log into my Wi-Fi with Voiceover and then my Apple ID. And I thought like if I did that, then I could maybe do something. But the screen was just totally blown, like no external monitor or anything. So I had to uh, I had to go talk to people. It's a terrible experience. I, I, I had to go to the, the Apple store and like, you know, they ran uh, through all the tests and they were like, yep, it's broken. <laughs> and that's then, always a good feeling. Yeah. And then, and then of course they have to mail it in and I don't know, it took like five or six days or something. And it, it was, it was because I had never actually like started using it and I still had my old machine. It was not really that big of a deal, but it was, uh, you know, it's fine. I guess. But yeah, the the guy, like he started going through all the things that they changed. And then, and then after three or four things, he was like, it's a lot. So it, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like, it sounds like maybe the case is the same and they, uh, they refactored the hardware, so to speak. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, well, why don't, why don't you tell the people, uh, who this episode is sponsored by? Well, this episode is once again sponsored by Datatog, which is a monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. It's built by engineers for engineers. Datadog provides visibility into more than 200 technologies, including AWS, Chef, and Docker, with built-in metric dashboards and automated alerts. With end-to-end request tracing, Datadog provides visibility into your applications and their underlying infrastructure, all in one place. And you, dear listener, can go to www.datadog.com slash SDT. Again, that's datadog.com slash SDT. Sign up for a free trial and you will get a free T-shirt. And this week, Datadog wants us to know a little bit about monitoring Amazon EC2 instances. So, you know, we've talked so much about Kubernetes and containers, but sometimes you just want to know what's going on with the actual host machine you know, are the metrics you know and love, CPU, memory, disk, 
and all kinds of stuff. And then reading about it, I actually learned, because I did not know this, in AWS, you can actually monitor things like CPU credit balance, CPU usage, uh, and CPU surplus credit balance. So in AWS, if your uh, CPU doesn't use as much as you think it's going to use, they'll actually give you some credits, and you can actually monitor your credits and your balance using Datadog. So host monitoring never gets old. Our friends at Datadog want you to do it. So again, go to datadog.com, go to slash SDT, sign up for a trial, and tell them your friends at Software Define Talk sent you. Mm, man, host monitoring is the best. I remember. I haven't done this in a while, but I used to get really excited when I would go to a new network and you could just like SNMP walk various things and just, just <laughs> see what's on there. It that is. fun stuff. Well, you know, speaking of uh, beef ribs, I, I'm, I'm coming up with a new life hack, uh, which I think might be caused by all these beef ribs. But I was, I was, uh, you know, I was at the spring tour Dallas a couple of weeks ago. And of course, of course we gave out a t-shirt because we're no cheapskates. We're not just giving you some sort of like <laughs> bag made out of recycled Ikea furniture. Uh, and, uh, so I got one <clears throat> or actually I shouldn't say I got one. I saw one on the table. Because, you know, I work there, so I, I didn't really get one at the beginning. But there was one le left over, and it was an extra large. Normally, I get a large. And then and then we did a whole bunch of laundry uh, re recently. So I was wearing this shirt, and this extra large shirt, very comfortable. So that's that's what I'm going to – you know, like like I've been wearing large shirts for a while, feeling good about myself. But I don't know. Maybe as I slide towards, you know, full-on daddom, just going to get an extra large shirt. It feels pretty good. So it's nice. The soft cotton, the mm. extra fabric. Mm. You know, it's the way to go. Don't, yeah. don't overthink that. Yeah, I like it. Oh, oh man, so nice. So uh, you know, I, to 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 pick one of the items, there was there was a, a fair amount of of um, uh, especially when you write it in your show notes twice. When one, I should say, I did that. But there's a couple of like little acquisition things going on that I think were interesting. Um, and one of them was, I don't really know who uh, HCL and, and Sumera Equity Partners are. It's like an Indian company and someone else. But if you remember Ingress, that's that's a database. And if you also remember Pervasive here in uh, in Austin, they've been, they've been combined together in this company called Actian uh, for a while, since uh, 2013, my notes tell me. And they they were bought by this uh, for three hundred and thirty million dollars by this this joint venture between these two companies. And I exerted some of the uh, analysis from four or five one. And I, I think also you see in Wikipedia that uh, that Actian bought uh, Pervasive for about one hundred sixty two million dollars. So that's an interesting spread uh, between the uh, the two companies. Now Pervasive, I always thought they were interesting because they were basically like I don't know. I'll probably get this wrong, but you know, there was something like a twenty, thirty million dollar uh annual revenue company that was also a public company. So they were one of the rare instances uh that you could kind of look at the financial blood work of a pretty pure pure play or a small company that was doing database stuff, uh, which which is always curious to look at. But you know, you know, Acteon. Very exciting. I, I think uh if it's fun to also look at the history of them. Because I think the uh, the people who ended up writing Postgres, uh, that Stonebreaker guy and friends, 
they actually started Ingress long ago, and and it went through. Uh, I think I tweeted somewhere this history that the Register article had, but it was a very representative history of like if you're going to be a uh, let's see if they started it in the '80s. That's like what thirty five plus years. I, I can't really do math, but like if you're going to be like a company that old, it's highly likely you're going to have a history like theirs where you're. Uh, well, for one thing, you're going to be owned by CA for a couple of years at least. <laughs> but <laughs> you're just you're going to go on the uh the grand tour of uh renames and being owned by companies and spun out and and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, which which is fun. Well, it's interesting all these acquisitions that we see. I guess it's like kind of coming to a macro level that I guess the the public markets are just disinterested in kind of these software companies that have mm-hmm. like say less than a hundred million dollars in you know annual revenue and so it just kind of leaves them out there right and for the most part as we've seen you know throughout the probably the history of this podcast that you know private equity firms are more than happy to just continuously pick up these you know kind of older uh software technologies usually traditional enterprise licenses that they're selling and then kind of just roll them together and you know over time they create pretty large maintenance streams especially if you kind of keep rolling up a bunch of different one of these companies. Now they get big enough, right? The rollups can become public, but more often it seems like they just sort of get swapped around between these various private equity firms. So I, I mean, I don't know if that's good or bad. It's just interesting that there's this, this void in between like being a startup and trying to grow rapidly to become public. And then of course the public companies have made it, but there's just this, you know, middle ground that's just sort of is really only the domain of private equity. There's really no one else, uh, in there doing anything. So it just means there's a lot of light license and maintenance revenue that just sort of this rolls right to those guys, um, which I guess is a good thing. It just, it's, it's kind of just, I don't know why though the public markets yeah. are disinterested in it. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, this is sort of, uh, I don't know if it's perennial, that means once a year or something. Right. But like, a a, a common topic with me is like, uh, is, is a lot of what you're saying is like, why, uh, why on the one hand, do, do let's call them investors investors are only interested in this certain profile of software company and uh high growth is obviously everyone likes high growth but like clearly microsoft and oracle uh are are like also the types of companies they're interested in and what is what is the nature of that company and and as you're saying it's uh, the nature is billions and billions of dollars so maybe just size is something but then uh, the you know and then why are you not interested in these other things that uh i don't know have similar like share price percentage changes that you could make money off of or not i I don't really know what i'm talking about there but it seems like if you're a tech company you get punished if you're not like high growth or something and then meanwhile they'll probably go like invest in a cardboard company that has like single percent margins and be happy about that just to like hedge out their portfolio. Uh, but then uh, uh, the other side of that, and I remember, I maybe I don't remember if this was in my mind or we actually talked about it, but there was a software-defined interview with uh, Dominic, who works at Moogsoft. And, uh, you know, so any, someone in particular who, like, knows that the world of systems management and BMC and stuff, like, I'm always curious, like, I know all the theory, of course, of why large old companies don't innovate, but it's all just theory, right? Like I'm always interested in what the actual tactics are where, you know, there's, there's a, uh, it's, you're doing your annual planning in about Halloween till, I don't know, December or so. 
uh, and uh, and you know, there's there's this series of meetings where it's uh, your your software product is like let's say at a 4.0 version, it's about four years old, and then there's a series of meetings where I don't even know if it's actively or passively the decision gets made. We're going to stop funding innovation on this product and basically uh, let it die is not the wrong word, but we're just going to, it's just going to go into, uh, harvest, go into Stacy's Har- harvest, the profits. Yeah. 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 And, and, yes. and I, I think, I think harvesting the profits is, is part of it is a huge part of it, but there's also some decision of like an analysis of how much it would cost us to innovate this. And then also, there also has to be an analysis of when is the right time to stop innovating on it such that you can sustain five or 10 years more of harvesting the profits. You know, people, it's still a viable thing to buy versus like, like you look at like windows, right? Like, it's like, say what you will about windows, but it it evolved (laughs) or like office, right? Like Microsoft didn't really, there might've been multiple times where it decided like this year, maybe we'll, not be so crazy, but I don't know. Like, I think a lot of R and D money was spent on on Office for a long time, and so those meetings that they had seem to have always result in we're not going to sell this off to CA. Like, this is still a viable thing that we're having, <laughs> and it is like to me, it's like a right. weird chicken and egg problem of like if you're doing good innovation on a product, people will be interested and buy it, and it'll be profitable. But then once you stop doing good innovation, it's not profitable. And once it's not profitable, you want to stop doing innovation. So it is like, I don't know. It's a, I don't know how things end up in that. Uh, it'd be nice to know like three to five different instances of how those meetings went down and, and, and what they were. Other than just like, I don't know, McKinsey in like three horizon stuff or whatever. Like that. Of, right. of, of, of well, course, the perfect happens. curves are always there. Yeah. In practice, I think it's it's not. It would be nice. You know, it, it sounds um, like a great place to work where people are really thinking like strategically. Like a decision is made to harvest this, and then, you know, and then everyone proceeds. But what I what I've seen more realistically is it's a real slow process over many many years. Where it's more around starts with finance. They'll just look at like well. You know, usually it's your new license revenue. But look at the last year and say, okay, new license revenue was down X amount, right? But maybe your maintenance revenue is is either went up or is holding steady. But that new license revenue is what finance likes to then model mm-hmm. for your what resources, what money they're going to allocate to your product, right? So they may take it down, like just you know, pick out some number. I'll be like, okay, you need to cut 10% of your costs because you know you're not growing as fast, or you got to grow a lot faster. So then that happens three or four years in a row. And that's what happens. That's how it slowly moves kind of from, you know, kind of goes through the whole life cycle from being growth to like kind of this like a rising star to like, uh, um, what am I forgetting? Right. You know, the whole, I can't remember the McKinsey stuff, but anyway, from rising star to like the outlier. And then what happens over time is like five years go by and there was never really this one meeting that said was a cash cow, but you know, you've lost 10% year over year. And resources and now suddenly you're really just stuck fixed and bugs and kind of keeping the lights on and now you know now no one has ever come out and said it but now you're just really you know uh harvesting the revenue so yeah. it would be great though 
if there was a meeting, and it does happen eventually, usually it results in some bigger event though. Usually when someone says, oh, we're not going to do this anymore, then they sell it, right? They're like, we're going to sell this to private equity. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, then you really know what's happening. So it'd be great. I want to work at a place that has more of those meetings though. That would be, that would be great. The, the mystery of corporate strategy. <laughs> yes. The- <sighs> Man, corporate strategy. Did I ever tell you I used to do that? What a... What a painful job that is. I imagine, I imagine it's what like doing CrossFit feels like, where you're just like, where you're like, you know, as, as you're like, uh, carrying, uh, like a dump truck tire up the stairs for the fifth time, like throwing up on yourself, you're like, man, I'm loving this. And, uh, you're, you're just feeling healthy. That's, that's what happens in CrossFit, right? Yeah. No, I think that's true. But I do think, uh, someone else said this. I won't say who it was, but I thought it was like really insightful was, just talking about like, I guess I won't say so much like I think of corporate strategy as like the moment like you're evaluating product market fit, you know, or your competitive differentiation in like a really honest way. But so there's always this belief like, why don't we doing this all the time? And so the comment somebody made to me that I liked was, well, it just it just happens in different companies for very short periods of time. Like you're going to work somewhere where like probably working in corporate strategy is great. Like there's going to be this 90 day, mm. six month process where the company is like truly grappling with big strategic decisions and like something's going to change. But then I kind of, once that period is over, like it's going to be done for like five years. It's just going to kind of like, everyone's just going to work to that, even though there's gonna be lots of meetings. So I've been thinking more about that as like, it's not so much you want a job in corporate strategy. It's like, you just want to be somewhere where the moment of like really strategic thinking is happening and you feel like you have a chance to change it. And then as soon as it's over, you know, you, you probably either want to go execute that vision, have a job like that, or get away from that company, right? Because like, it's mm. like, ah, that company's not doing it. So if you think of it more like it happens in discrete pockets versus like it's an ongoing job, it kind of make, it makes more sense to me. Yeah, yeah. No, that definitely seems to be the case because at some point you've got to be like, we've put all these uh, five to 10 year like business cases in place. I, I guess we should focus on that. <laughs> yeah. Instead of coming up with new ones. And then you just shift to like doing annual finance and opportunistic like uh and white papers and divestitures. Yes. And I, white papers. That's I, it, slides of white papers. I think I think I mean you're getting dangerously close to describing the the last ten years or so of, of my career. But uh yeah, you you definitely do not want your corporate strategy people writing writing white papers. Maybe maybe some of like the subject matter experts if you have those, but Oof. The other people, their job is not to write white papers. It would be like uh, it would it would be like some of those sell side PDFs I get, where you just read it and you're like, "What the fuck are they talking about?" <laughs> and then and then there's like ten pages of just like tables of numbers, like whatever whatever that is. Oh man. Well, there was also uh, so who you know I recognize the name Logic Monitor, but I forget I forget what they who which ones are they. Yeah, they're another monitoring company based, uh, I think, started in California, but they actually have an office here in Austin, as well as a couple other places, and they were picked up by uh, Vista Equity, so no surprise there. Mm. Kind of back to our earlier conversation, it looks like they, you know, kind of reached probably that, like, middle ground, right, 10 to $60 million of revenue, something in there, and decided to go ahead and, and sell to private equity rather than, you know, kind of keep keep fighting the good fight to grow. And I, I just thought like this week, you know, I feel like we've solved like the full cycle of monitoring. It's, you know, we have Vista sort of, you know, logic monitor rather exiting the private equity way. 
Then um, we had Sensu, if I'm saying that right, raised $10 million for a new robust monitoring system, right? And that they're building out. So they're at the very beginning of this process of growth. And then you had AppDynamics who sort of made it, right? They sort of like went public or on the verge of going public and got bought by Cisco. And they seem to be, you know, doing pretty well. And it's like right there, you kind of have this like little microcosm of like all stages of monitoring companies and you know and i, and I just kind of go back to it. it's like it's just, i know we talk a lot about monitoring it's it's just always interesting and it's like you know i guess as long as the technology stack just continues to change right you're always going to have new people entering this and kind of their own take on how to monitor it um but i'm just amazed like you know, every week um i feel like every week we could do just a monitoring discussion and um so we'll see. We'll see how it goes, you know, with uh, both Logic Monitor, how they do it at Vista Equity, and then if the new guys, Sensu, can do something new and exciting. Now, now is, uh, is Sensu the one that's like a Nagios fork? I forget. Or, or is it something um, else? They seem to be, their, their claim to fame seems to be really consolidating lots of data from various open source tools, and I think mm. Nagios being one of them. So they're trying to, like, you know, they, they, they tend to have that kind of enterprise versus, you know, community edition, and they want to pull in data from various other things. And their history is, you know, coming out of, I think, they, professional services or some guys that were basically monitoring things and building things. So they built some tools themselves. So, you know, I think their take was like, hey, we really want a way to consolidate lots of different data from lots of different um, open source product, but Nagios plugins and, you know, all the various things that are out there. So, I mean... It's interesting, right? It's like in, in this case, in their case, they were not a SaaS, which was surprising, right? That seems to be mm. what everybody starts with. Like we're SaaS-based, whatever. But they were a very traditional-looking monitoring tool. Uh, so it would be interesting to see what happens with them, whereas you know, Logic Monitor was – just the opposite, right? They're like, hey, we're the new great SaaS monitoring tool and you know it's gonna be great. And they've got, you know, all their things out there. And then of course, right, App Dynamics, right, been around for a long time and 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 being very SaaS based. So I don't know. I don't know. Is this is the private cloud <laughs> is the private cloud old school monitoring? Is it back? Is it have we circled all the way around? I don't know. I guess we'll see what Sensu does. Now now what do, what do you think uh what what do you think like the acquisition landscape looks like for like monitoring people? Like because similarly, there's sort of like waves that happen where like uh, like like incumbent vendors uh, or as we would say nowadays, service providers or whatever, if they're public cloud, like it seems like there'll be like a year where a lot of different monitoring things are snapped up. And, and it usually makes sense, right? Like they the uh, because of whatever that mystery we were talking about earlier, uh, the company itself is unable to innovate and uh, evolve its own monitoring stuff, or it just doesn't have it at all. Like, I think, um, like Google bought, um, I forget what they called, not Stack Engine, but I think it was Stack something, Stack Driver or something like that. And I think that became like Google's uh, monitoring thing at some point. But, you know, they basically have to buy... uh, monitoring tools to innovate their own portfolio of fill gaps and like thinking about it like it seems like everyone's good <laughs> like like they've got all their gaps filled and things like that so i wonder like i don't know what do you think do you think there's companies who still need to like acquire monitoring companies what's what's your sense out there well i think you go you have to go hand in hand with the technology stack so if you're starting a monitoring company today we would probably start trying to do something interesting and in cloud functions, also known as serverless, right? Lambda. Like, so we would say lots of people are 
building this out. So is there some unique pain point, you know, like some kind of tracing? And there's a lot of this exists, but like if you could look at that and say, yeah, we really want this because one of the strategic vendors you just mentioned, right? Google, Microsoft, list goes on, right? Will eventually have to do like a build versus buy decision around that. So that, if you're trying to get bought, I think that would be the number one place to start. Um, and, you know, and I think that's sort of, and then if, if you're just doing the more traditional stuff, then it's more about can you just get big enough, kind of like that right. at Dynamics, right? If you get big enough and you're turning out enough money, um, people feel like, you know, like Cisco felt like having AppD inside uh, their portfolio really makes them a lot of money. So then there's that's the other place to go. But I think it's it's what we were talking about earlier, right? It's this middle is where it's hard, right? When you get into this like $30 million in revenue, you've got like a little bit of cloud monitoring, you got some host monitoring, you know, you've got some database monitoring where that's the place where that's going to be basically private equity is going to be interested, right? Because they yeah. probably want that revenue stream, but there isn't going to be a strategic vendor step in and really, you know, want to snap you up in the same time too. There's probably not some event that's going to happen and make you grow at like, you know, 5,000%. So, you know, that having said all that, like, I, I don't know. I'm always amazed how many companies are attracted to monitoring as kind of the domain to, to, to work in. I always wonder if it's just a combination of, yeah, there is the capability to get to $30 million because so many people have done it. So maybe that's just sort of like a safe way, you know, kind of a proven market to get in that. Or is it just like technologists just love monitoring, right? It's just like, it's almost like a form of branding. You just like, you've worked somewhere for a while and you've just invented some version of monitoring that, you know, you're going to have this passionate group around. Maybe it's like, you know, maybe it's 300 companies, but like they just all believe that your monitoring is the way to go. So you have like a little mm. tribe that forms around it just because, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like any type of developer tools. It becomes like a tribe that just wants to carry it forward. But it, nonetheless, right, it's just like every every year, every few months, more and more monitoring continues to roll out. Yeah. 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 You know, if I thought about it, it's probably like this in most every infrastructure category. But I feel like uh, in particular with with monitoring and, you know, by monitoring, we mean like log management and APM and all all the great shit. Uh, but <clears throat> you, to your point, you either need to be like extremely narrow and exit very quickly, right? Cause you're not going to be able to sustain many years of just doing like a narrow thing, or you've got to be like extremely broad and maybe you can hold out for, for a long time. And so like, and what I mean by broad is if, if you remember from the, uh, the ad read, you just have hundreds of things that, that you can manage a monitor, which is also the case with Splunk and App Dynamics and all these other, uh, you know, they, they're broad plays, if you will. And it seems like, I mean, those are, there's really not a very good middle ground, like, like kind of sort of good at telling you what's happening with all your computers. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I think you get to like when you get into monitoring too, it's like the thing about it. And I think this is anytime you're looking at some kind of category that has like management in the name. The reason a lot of times there's that void between like say 10 and $50 million is that just what you're talking about there, the breadth of what they're trying to do sort of like becomes the weight that no one can carry forward. So like if you're a log management company, there's just so many types of logs and so many messages that at some point, instead of like getting this mass scale, right? Like if you just built the container technology, for example, Docker, it was like, yeah, 
that's perfect. That's what we want. You're going to get this massive adoption and massive scale out of it because everyone's just going to grab that container. But flip that around. It's like any identity management, log management, systems management, whatever. The bigger you get, the more things you have to take on. And at some point, you're like, I do 100 things, but I'm so busy with those 100 things that I can't go get the next 200 things, right? And the company begins to just kind of stall out, right? Mm. It's just like we can't get we can't get any bigger. Like we can't be any more horizontal than we already are because it's just the technology stack is just insane, right? When you get to that level. So I think that's probably a natural drag on monitoring, but it's almost like the hill that everyone continues to climb. It's like, okay, well you got, you know, you got a little further. Now I'm going to see if I can take it a little bit further versus like, you know, like I said, the container technology is a good example. Whereas like when VMware and Docker, once those become standards or Linux, it's like, you know, everyone adopts it and they're getting a massive return on their investment at that point. Right. Because they're not having to like be so horizontal. Mm, for sure. Well, what, what, we uh, we only got a few minutes left because, you know, we got to We got to get on with the live. So if you go to the show notes, which will be at uh, software defined talk dot com slash one thirty one. We've got a list of uh, several of the things we didn't cover. You know, I don't really put out the newsletter anymore. I don't know why. It's just work, and no one seemed to care. But uh, so there's not that. But you can go to the show notes to see the uh, the other stuff that we're doing over there at softwaredefinedtalk.com slash one thirty one. And also, uh, we got a list of conferences we'll be at. Matt and I, who is not on this episode, in case you can't tell, uh, will be at DevOps Days Jakarta uh, next week, which will be exciting. And then there's a bunch of other stuff we'll be at starting in May. And, uh, you know, there's also a bunch of spring tours to go to. If I think if you go to springtour.io or something, you can find it. That's my excellent advertising for it. Um, but also I want to do, you know, remind people that uh, if you haven't subscribed to Software Defined Interviews yet, you should go there. I bet you can guess the domain name for it. It's similar to the Software Defined Talk one, except it says interviews. So it's softwaredefinedinterviews.com. And uh, Brandon has a great uh, interview up about product management. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of other ones, like, you know, we're talking about uh, AI and stuff. I referenced that, and we got all sorts of other ones. And you may remember from last episode, we put one in about Istio, but check that out. And then I just wanted to put a plug for one of my other podcasts, the uh, the cashedout.coffee podcast I do. And I think we've got – get hold on to your, your pants, Brandon. We have like 80 downloads, so we're really <laughs> killing it. But you should go check that out if, if, if you enjoy all the uh, – I don't know, the nonsense banter that I do. I have an old friend of mine, Robert Brooke, who uh, he, he lives over in London, and we just talk about, uh, we, we aspire to not talk about computers and talk about other things. So just go to cashedout.coffee, and uh, you can find it there or search around for it. And then, of course, you can get 20% off of T-shirts. If you go look at the show notes, there's a code you can use. And if you want any stickers, just uh, email stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, and Brandon will cheerfully go visit his friends at the post office and, and mail those off for you. And then uh, we also have, of course, the Slack you can join, which is, uh, what's the, you just go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash Slack, and, and you'll find it. There's, there's a whole lot of discussion over there nowadays, which is great. It's encouraging. You can get uh, coffee recommendations and discussions about Oracle and other things that are interesting in between. So this week, we only have two recommendations, but maybe we'll slip in some other ones. What's your recommendation for this week, Brandon? Yeah, well, a couple of things. One, I want to thank Jonathan from Denver. 
who uh, emailed in saying we are the best, and I sent him a sticker. And then Jody from somewhere in the UK was listening to the Software Defined Talk backlog. He said he he just discovered us and was worried we ran out of stickers. But if you're not, Jody, I sent him a sticker as well. So uh, thanks for uh, emailing in. And then my recommendation this week, really two, a couple recommendations. One is I discovered this audiobook, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is just kind of this crazy story uh, about kind of what went on in uh, between the United States and an Indian reservation um, kind of like way back when the FBI was getting started. So it was uh, just a compelling story. I've never heard it. So if you're interested, it's a little bit of true co- crime, but it also uh, ends up having kind of, if you will, intersecting with the formation of uh, the FBI uh, before it was the FBI. It was something else. And, and you know, it was one of the big investigations they just did. But it's uh, it's like it's like everything in history, right? Like you read it and you're like, can't believe it's true. So it was, it was a pretty compelling tale. And uh I don't know. It felt timely just with so much discussion of the FBI today and its role. It's kind of like interesting to go back and see how it started and what they were working on. So Killers of the Flower Moon was good on Audible. And I also wanted to both, you know, highlight some uh, digital transformation as well as a little tip for those of us that live in Travis County here in Texas is that uh, every year, this time of year, they send out your property tax and, and you get it. And then there's this process because it's always, you always feel like it's it's unfair and it's too much. So you can uh, go appeal it. Well, this year there's an online appeal process. So uh, sticking to what I know you like, Kote, you don't actually have to talk to anyone. So you just go online. And uh, for me, it was very simple. I, they just said uh, appeal. I clicked appeal. And then they, you basically put in what you think your house is worth. And then they give you a little note that says, okay, we'll, we'll look it over. And if we, um, if we want more information, we'll let you know. So sure enough, mm. uh, the day went by like a day, I think maybe 24 hours. And then they, uh, they said they didn't give me what I wanted, but they made a counter offer. And I quickly decided that was like, well, I'll take that because I don't have to go to the tax office and like compile all of this information from like Redfin and, you know, come up with some rational argument about why I'm right. I was right, like, right. that it's not worth my time. So I just accept like, it. Like, like take some rusty, some pictures of rusty nails <laughs> on your porch and be like, boom, yeah. $20,000 in value lost. Exactly. And, uh, so I just accepted it. They sent me an email and everybody was happy. So I just, again, like I'm, I'm sure there are, uh, for those that want to save more, I'm sure going to the, the courthouse or the county office rather is probably gives you a better chance, but I'll take it. I'll take a little digital transformation. Uh, anytime that I don't have to interact with the government or I can make it a much more online pleasant experience, I always like it. So very localized recommendation. If you live in Travis County, uh, here in, in Texas somewhere, uh, check it out. I thought it was a, an easy way to appeal my property tax. Mm. Yeah, you know that 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 whole notion of appealing your your tax assessment was very weird to me when I heard about it at first. It's it's uh, oh, I got too much to think about. It's a very it's it's it feels it smells like a real big inefficiency in some economic system that like basically you can uh, you can hire some robot lawyers. They're not robots, but I met, you know, some lawyers who basically just file some paperwork and then, oh, all of a sudden it's worth less. And you're like, well, why, why was it overvaluated at the first? I don't know. Seems anyways. So my first recommendation, you know, if you're up in Minneapolis, July 12th to 13th, you should go to DevOps Days Minneapolis. I sadly haven't been for the last couple of years uh, f- for reasons, but like I, I've been to several of them and they're great. 
they're uh they're they're extremely well put on and uh they got good talks and uh you know i mean they're they're one of the better put together ones i don't know if they've got the uh the the purple fading lights behind the keynote speakers but you might want to wave off on a devops stage if you see that that might be a little too fancy they should instead buy you a nicer t-shirt or maybe a little fanny pack or something but whatever maybe that's included anyways uh it's up uh july 12th and 13th of this year of course and uh we got a discount code from bridget who's one of the people who helps put it on if you use the code sdt2018 that's the year that we're in and the abbreviation of the podcast you can get yourself 20% off the tickets, which will make it uh, very affordable. But you should check that out if you're in the area. It's it's a good conference. And we'll, of course, put that in the show notes uh, so you can check on it. So I have two uh, – well, I already kind of gave one of my recommendations. But earlier today, my uh, my haircutting barber lady, Abby Gapko, uh, she seems to have uh, left. I can't find uh, hide nor hair, so to speak, of her around anymore. Though I haven't been very thorough. I haven't hired a PI or anything, so there's no, like, Jessica Jonesing to uh, to find her. But she doesn't seem to be around anymore, so I got a recommendation from our friend Charles Lowell. And uh, he said to go to this place called The Grand. Uh, and I'm very hesitant, you know, there's people involved uh, that you got to talk with. But I went there, and it was one of these sort of, like, uh, you know, old-timey hipster-style things. They all wear vests, and they got the old... Uh, they all seem to roll up their their dark jeans, uh, and uh, you know, so it's got that vibe to it. But they also have like the free drinks. I was there at like eleven fifteen, and someone there was a bottle of Bullet and Tito's there, and uh, one of the people came up to call someone, and they said, "Well, you know, fellas, this bourbon's not going to drink itself." So I thought, well, I I should clearly go get some. Uh, so that was nice. And then, uh, yeah, I got a really excellent haircut. And they also do the thing with the straight razor shaving, and they'll put towels on your face, like hot two rounds of hot towels. And then I don't know how the cold towel works, but they got all that going on. And it's totally great. So if you're in Austin, you know, they'll cut your beard if you have one in your hair. And, and uh, when I came home, my wife said, that's a really great haircut. You look like a man, which, uh, which I think is good. Uh, and uh, you should go there. The guy I had was uh, Alexis. He was very nice. He was a couple years older than me, which made me feel like I was uh, in good hands. So uh, go check that out. The Grand. It's. Uh, I think I got out of there with like paying like sixty or seventy dollars, including tip. So thanks for listening. This has been Software Defined Talk. As always, if you want to uh, see all the things we've been referencing and telling you there in the show notes. You just go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 131, and you can find all the stuff, the discounts to things, and uh, how to get your Datadog t-shirt there. And uh, also, just to remind you, I mean, if you've listened this far, you certainly like the podcasts uh, that we and I put out. You should go check out the Cashed Out podcast. There'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. And maybe next time, we'll have 90 listeners uh, or downloads which uh, will be very exciting. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. What'd you have for breakfast today? I had one taco. Mm. I had the, uh, the salsa. Yeah. yeah, I love it. And I had the flour tortilla with the eggs. Mm. And uh, what did I have? I had some red salsa, and I had some corn chips, making it an Amiga's taco. It was great. Ooh. What's, your, what's your position on potatoes in a breakfast taco? I do like the potato. I do like breakfast tacos. I prefer not to have them in there primarily because I just try not to eat a lot of potatoes. Mm. Yeah. All right. Let me test that out.